In the second message in our Servant King series as we go through the Gospel of Mark. I love the Gospel of Mark because it is concise, it is fast-paced, and, and you feel like you're constantly moving from one major moment in the life of Jesus to the other. In the last message, we looked at Mark chapter 1. In this message, we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, and the title of the message is Scribes, Sinners, and the Sabbath. Scribes, sinners and the Sabbath. Now this chapter happens in the little sleepy town of Capernaum. Capernaum is, a, is on a main road. It's on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fisherman town. It had houses, probably a thousand people maybe lived in Capernaum at the time of Christ. Peter lived there and Andrew and, and others. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But I love to visit the, ru the ruins of Capernaum. Now, I've heard people say, oh, I stood in the synagogue at Capernaum where Jesus spoke. Actually, they didn't. That's a third century synagogue that was built on top of the first century when you can actually look down in a hole and see a small corner of the first century synagogue. And not far from that is the place that tradition says, this is not a X marks the spot, but the place that tradition says was the location of Peter's home, that when Jesus left the synagogue and went immediately to Peter's home, that it was immediately in the proximity of the synagogue, and it would make sense because that is a home they have unearthed very, very close to the synagogue. It is an amazing city to visit. It was the home of at least five of the disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew, or Levi. Possibly Peter's home is where they gathered. It kind of became the home office of Jesus. All kind of people were there. And Jesus was ministering in Capernaum. And remember, he will have some harsh words about this city because of their unbelief. So it's important that you know the opportunities that they had early on in the ministry of Jesus that they didn't follow up on when Jesus pronounces a curse on these cities that didn't believe and didn't follow. All kinds of people have gathered there, the curious, the sick, the critics, the disciples, the scribes. They've got all kinds of attitudes. Some of them are eagerly wanting to hear Jesus as he teaches with one with authority. Some are skeptical about this carpenter from Nazareth Others are just wanting to get healed. There are some people that have a questioning spirit. Mark chapter 1 and verse 45, Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Literally all over the region, people were descending on this little town. Chapter 2. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Remember, he came. If you read the Gospels, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He came to preach the gospel. Verse 3, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, being unable to get him, get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, 
they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Let's look, first of all, at the authority of Jesus over sickness and sin. His authority over sickness and sin. Now, this was a burr under the saddle of the scribes and the Pharisees and his, the skeptics and the cynics because this fresh face, this authoritative voice, this wind from heaven has blown across the landscape of Galilee and he is teaching, he is bringing the word to him. And all of a sudden, there's noise on the roof. Now, these roofs were thatch roofs and they would have dug through the straw and the, and the mud. And, and these four friends are bringing this paralytic to Jesus, and they're digging a hole. I, I want you to see what Jesus says. Seeing their faith, verse 5. The focus of the story is not on the healing. It is on the forgiveness and their faith. That, that is important because Jesus is constantly having to adjust because people just wanted him to be a healer. They just wanted him to multiply loaves and fish. As he became popular, the crowd swelled. Why? Because he was doing things for them. But here he is teaching, and he didn't want his mission to be lost. And they lower this man into the ceiling. Now, a couple of thoughts here. Some folks only want church when they need help. Some folks are church members of churches, ours, other churches, and, and they never darken the door of the church. They, they never participate. They never serve. They never give. They don't do anything, but when they need a bill paid, all of a sudden they show up at the church. They just want the church to be a help dispensary. They just want the church for help. The church is here to help, but we are more than a social ministry which a lot of other agencies in this world do. Here's the thought I want you to hang on. You may think you need God to help, but what you really need is the God of help. You may think you need God to help. Lord, I need you to help me, but what you really need is God. The God who is the source and the sufficiency of our help. You see, here's the difference between when I was growing up and first in the ministry between the, the liberal side of evangelical Christianity, if there is such a thing, and the conservative side of evangelical Christianity. The liberal side said, just focus on the social gospel. Just focus on meeting needs and clothing people and feeding the hungry and all that. Don't worry about sharing the gospel with people. And the conservative side would say, just share the gospel and don't worry about the social needs of people. Now, there's a happy median there that needs to be struck. There's a balance there because if we just give help, eventually when things go back to normal, people go back to ignoring the church. But if we give hope, the God of hope, then that lasts beyond the help that we gave them. That lasts beyond the meal that we provided. That lasts beyond the, the resources that we put in their hands. I, I love these four men. I wish they had been named. 
Uh, their names are not in the bulletin and they're not in the scripture, but they didn't read the bulletin that day and, and they disrupted this service in an unconventional and unexpected way. Here's what I know about them. They love their friend enough to bring him to Jesus. That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Do we love our friends and our family members enough to take them to Jesus, the only one who can forgive their sin? They love their friend enough that they were willing to do something to get their friend to Jesus. They did all they could do. They carried him, they dug a hole in the roof, and then Jesus did what only he could do. I love this quote by Ray Stedman. They dared to do the difficult. They dared to do the unorthodox. And they dared to do the costly. So as Jesus is teaching, these men interrupt the message. It would have been easy for everybody to say, can you just go ahead and heal the guy so we can be on our way and get back because we were just finishing up point number one and I missed a fill in the blank because of all the noise that was going on on the roof. But Jesus makes an accurate assessment of the paralytic's need. He needed forgiveness. And sin was a bigger problem than his suffering. It was a bigger problem than his suffering. The greatest need of this man was forgiveness, not healing. In fact, there's some indication here that this disease that this man had might have been emotionally induced illness. That is something in his past or his present, some attitude of anger or bitterness or whatever that he harbored and some feeling that he had indulged and petted and fed led to him just being paralyzed. It just froze him. Now we know people like that. No, they may not be physically paralyzed, but we know people that are locked in and paralyzed mentally and emotionally and spiritually because of some sin that they won't deal with and they can't get past it. Something that happened to them 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago and they're still bringing it up. They can't get beyond it. They need to learn that God forgives. They need to learn that God loves, that he shows grace. They need a healing of their heart, of their soul, of their spirit. Look at the attitude in the midst of all this of the scribes. They, these are guys that you really wouldn't want to be a part of your church. Verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. In other words, they're not speaking out loud. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, there's that word immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, Jesus could read their minds and read their hearts, said to them, verse 8, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. 
And he got up and immediately picked up his pallet and went out of the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, back up to verse 10 for just a moment. So that you may know what Jesus is doing is he's drawing that line in the sand to these scribes. You're going to know after this that I am God. You're going to know after this, yes, God is the only one that can forgive sins, and I'm about to forgive his sin, and so I'm making you make a decision about who I am. And then the second thing you notice is that the, the, the paralytic is having to be carried in. I don't know how they got him up on the roof. And then he's lowered down through the roof on a pallet. But when he walks out, he walks out with his pallet, and people say, we've never seen anything like this before. They were reasoning in their hearts. They weren't saying a word. It, it means they were dialoguing in their hearts. They were like looking at each other saying, yeah, you know what I think. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And they were making eyes at each other, and they were doubting Jesus. They were rejecting him because they said only God can forgive sin. So Jesus gives them a little something to ponder, which is easier to say to you that your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. Obviously, it's easier to say sins are forgiven because no one can prove whether or not that's happened. But Jesus did both. Here's the thing. Jesus forgave the sin and healed the man. The Pharisees couldn't do either one. The scribes couldn't offer forgiveness because they weren't God. And they couldn't heal the man because they didn't have the power of God on their lives. Jesus did both. It is a declaration that he is God in the flesh so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. It's like Jesus is saying, here I am. I'm the I am. I'm the visible version of Yahweh. I'm the great I am. I am fulfilling prophecies that Messiah will heal people. And I've healed this man, and only God can forgive sin, and I've just forgiven him. Look at the third thing. Now look at verse 14. I love these verses. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. That's Levi's house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. I mean, even these hard-hearted tax collectors were curious. They're following him. They're especially curious about Matthew leaving a successful business and then inviting Jesus, this preacher, this prophet, into the home to fellowship with all these sinners. Verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus 
specifically sought out those that religion rejected. He specifically went after people that the religious crowd said, well, I hope they don't come to our church. I don't like those kind of people. I, I don't like those kind of people. You know, it's that whole argument uh, that I got when I went to college that churches are, uh, have to be all alike. In other words, if it's a white church, it needs to be a white church. If it's an African-American church, it needs to be an African-American church. If it's a middle-class church, you don't need to try to reach people that are above middle class, and you don't need to try to reach the poor. That has nothing to do with the New Testament picture of a church. That is an opposite of the New Testament picture of a church. It is a convenient way to make a religious social organization that has nothing to do with the Spirit of God working in it. Paul refutes that when he says, in Christ there's no male or female, no, no slave or free, no Jew or Gentile, but all are one in Christ. In other words, diversity is a picture of a work of God. These religious leaders hated the fact that, what is this guy doing eating with sinners? Now, let me tell you something about a tax collector. Caesar had set up this tax collecting system, and to just stick it in the eye of the Jewish people, he would enlist Jewish people to be the local IRS agent. And so he would get a tax collector to be loyal to Rome, which made the Jews despise the tax collector. So here's what Caesar would do. A person could come and buy a franchise in a city. So you buy this tax collector booth and, and you own this franchise. Then you set up the tax system for your own benefit. That's why they hated the tax collectors, because this is what Rome required, and the tax collector said, hmm, we'll just ask for a little more. We'll give the government what they want, and we'll keep the rest. Government, us, always above. But as long as the government was getting their part, they left them alone. These tax collectors got wealthy at other people's expense. If you want to know how bad the Pharisees hated tax collectors, let me tell you three specific things that they did in regard to tax collectors. And there was one in every village, in every town. First of all, they refused to take their gifts. So if a tax collector showed up at the synagogue and said, I'd like to make an offering, the scribes and the Pharisees say, we don't want it. We're not going to take it. That's dirty money. We're not going to take it. Secondly, they considered lying. Now remember, the Ten Commandments talks about bearing false witness, and the Bible talks about lying. The Pharisees considered lying to a tax collector acceptable. In other words, cheat on your taxes. It's okay. They considered it an act of righteousness to lie to a tax collector. They were just protecting themselves from these tax collectors. And thirdly, they didn't believe that a tax collector could actually repent. In other words, they just cut off a tax collector from any possibility of having a relationship with God. And when Jesus calls Matthew 
He drives a nail into the diplomatic coffin. Because in the eyes of the Pharisees, this was a disqualification to represent God or to be Messiah. You're going to hang around with tax collectors, you're not a man of God. You're going to eat with sinners, you're not a man of God. Do you notice that Jesus didn't practice social distancing from sinners and from tax collectors, from the despised, from the hated? In fact, one of the greatest things they ever said about Jesus was he's a friend of sinners. Are we friends of sinners? Are we friends of sinners or do we walk around sinners with our noses stuck in the air thinking we are better than them and God loves us more than he loves them? The mistake of the scribes and the Pharisees is the one that churches make today. We just want church to be about us, us four, no more. We want church to be comfortable. We want it to be predictable. We want to be happy. But here's what Jesus does. Jesus shows us that people are more important than prejudice or our preconceived ideas. You know what matters to Jesus? People. You know what Jesus doesn't care about? Prejudices and preconceived ideas, especially preconceived ideas that are either developed by twisting Scripture or by ignoring Scripture. Verses 18 through 22 we see these familiar stories of fasting and a wedding and, and old and new wineskins. Why, why aren't your disciples fasting? You see, the law of Moses required one day a year to be a fast day, Yom Kippur, the, the day of atonement. But through the centuries, the Pharisees had added more fast days to show that they were more spiritual than other people. Look how much we fast. They were offended that Jesus and his disciples didn't follow the rules. So Jesus got to the heart of the problem in these stories about fasting and weddings and old and new wineskins because he said what the Pharisees had done is they had turned relationships into nothing more than regulations. All they cared about was regulations. There was no intimacy with God, only rituals. Now let me, let me say something about fasting. Fasting that doesn't develop you spiritually if you've got to brag about it. Fasting doesn't develop you spiritually if you've got to brag about it. Remember Jesus said, you know, pray in silent. You know, don't, don't go out and make this big bombastic display that you're fasting by throwing stuff on your face and wrapping stuff around you. Je Jesus said, you know, when you're in that kind of intimate thing with God in fasting and prayer, do it alone. Don't make announcements about it. Here's, here's what I've discovered. I've never met a person, I don't think, that fasts and doesn't talk about it. Oh, I can't. I'm, I've been fasting for 25 days. You know what that does? It makes me feel like an idiot. I guess, I, I guess I'm not as spiritual as they are. They're fasting for 25 days. Well, if God tells you to fast, that's fine but you don't have to make a religion out of it. And, and by the way, have you ever met anybody that stayed up and prayed all night that couldn't talk about it? Beat our own drum. I'm fasting. I'm praying all night. What are you doing, you sorry, wretched, carnal Christian? 
Jesus said, I care more about relationships than I care about your regulations and your ritual. Jesus is giving us a new picture of true worship. And he says, worship is a celebration. It is a joy. It's a feast. It's full of joy. Now, at a Jewish wedding, they would celebrate for a week. It was a time of feasting and fellowship with friends and family. One of the sad things that's happening during this time right now is, is people having to postpone their weddings or, or go from a planned wedding with all these events and, and everything else and, and just having to do it with just a handful of their family when they've waited all their lives to do this. And when you compare that to the Jewish celebration of a wedding of a week of eating and feasting and family and friends and, and celebration, Jesus said, that's what a relationship with me is like. It's family and friends, it's feasting, it's fellowship, it's joy. Now, I, I've preached in enough services to know that there are a lot of churches that have done what the enemies of Jesus could never do. We've made Jesus boring. Uh, several people have asked me, say, you know, how are you doing this? How are you preaching to an empty room? Well, it's not empty, Terry's in here, but... But how do you preach to an empty room, and, and how, do you, how do you do that? I, I don't know how you do that. And I said to one of them, I said, look, growing up, I preached in enough dead churches when I didn't know if anybody in there was actually breathing because they had their lips stuck out and their arms folded, and they looked like, could you get this over so we can go home? That I know what it's like to preach to dead wood. So Jesus says that's not what celebration and worship is about. It is about joy. It is about life. And he uses this illustration of a wineskin to drive his point home. Verses 21 and 22, he gives them a parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I love John Phillips. I love his writing. John Phillips said, The Lord did not come to improve our old nature. He came to provide us with a new nature capable of handling the baptism, indwelling, filling, and anointing of the mighty Spirit of God. Man, that's good. That's why he wrote all those commentaries, and I don't write commentaries. I just quote commentaries. He came to help us, to get us capable of handling what the Spirit of God was going to do in our lives. You see, Jesus did not come to patch up old Judaism. He came to start something new. And then lastly, look at his attitude toward the Sabbath. His attitude toward the Sabbath. It has happened that he's passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, you know, at some point you just want to say, do you guys not have anything else to do but follow me around and criticize me? But Jesus didn't do that. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he, is in, he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful. For anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man 
is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are these self-appointed police of the Sabbath. Jesus has seven run-ins with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. Five times over healing. This one time over the disciples picking grain and one time in response to a question. But here's what Jesus is telling us. I am about life, not laws. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath. I decided what the Sabbath would be. And I'm about life. And you've made rules about all these things. Jesus is the Lord of the, of the Sabbath. One writer said this and it so well. Inflexibility is the first cousin of unteachable. Inflexibility is the first cousin of unteachable. We still have Pharisees among us. They just want to keep rules and regulations. And they, they've got their list, and the guy next to them has got a different list, and they argue over their list, which one is spiritual, based on what list they've got. And they never know how to throw their arms open and just love somebody to God. The Pharisees weren't winning people to Jehovah. They were just building their systems and their structures and adding more and more, hundreds of rules. They couldn't even keep the Ten Commandments, but they kept adding rules to prove how spiritual they were and how separate they were. Jesus did not say, I have come that you might have rules and have more rules day by day. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Now, if you're watching today and you've seen religion that is all about rules and regulations and people that are stiff and look like they're mad all the time and drinking pickle juice all the time, that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. I want to invite you today to meet the living Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a cross for your sin, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, sent his Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and judgment and righteousness. And right now, the Holy Spirit could be speaking to your heart. It's not about your rules and that you've broken rules. It's about that God wants to have a personal relationship with you, you. The Pharisees didn't think that God could have a personal relationship with a tax collector. He will have a personal relationship with anyone who reaches out to him in the name of Jesus, who repents of their sins and turns from their old ways and gives their life to Christ. He will do that for you today, today. And there's some next steps that you can take, and we would love to share with you how you can begin and grow in a journey of faith with Jesus Christ. You'll see it at the bottom of your screen. You'll hear something at the end of my time here. We would love to connect with you and give you some things to help you in that journey. And if you're a Christian, let me ask you a question. 
where would you be more comfortable? With the Pharisees always walking around with their arms folded and their lips stuck out, always looking for something to gripe about? Or would you be more comfortable with Jesus who taught with authority and who amazed people by the fact that he loved sinners and he loved saints that stumbled and fell. God loves us when we're not perfect because he's perfect. And so I would encourage you as a believer, we may ought to ask God to make us a little more like Jesus and less like the religious crowd if we really want to make an impact on this world. Let's be Jesus in our families, with our friends, in our neighborhoods this week.